Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. It's late 2015. Aung San Suu Kyi has just led Myanmar's National League for Democracy to a smashing general election victory. In one of her first public appearances since the victory, Suu Kyi goes to a roadside to be photographed by journalists picking up garbage. Why? What was she doing there? The obvious answer to that question is launching a nationwide trash clearance campaign. The less obvious but more interesting one is outsourcing the polity. And that's the title of a new book by Jared McCarthy, subtitled Non-State Welfare, Inequality and Resistance in Myanmar, published in 2023 by Cornell University Press. Gerard is an assistant professor in social policy for development at the International Institute of Social Studies in The Hague. And in this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, he's talking with me, Nick Cheesman, an associate professor in the Department of Political and Social Change at the Australian National University. Gerard, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. What is outsourcing the polity? That's to say, what's the book about and to what process or processes is this title referring? How I define it is the transfer of social responsibilities for provisioning of welfare, public goods, uh, from state to non-state actors. And I look at this dynamic from the post-independence period um, and the legacies of the colonial periods, and then uh, trace that in particular through a new history of outsourcing during the uh, 1990s post-socialist period and how that shaped democratic politics and the expectations of the state and uh, demands on the state uh, during uh, that uh, 2010 to 2020 democratic kind of partial civilian rule period. State to non-state actors, what do those words mean in the context of Myanmar? Who are you referring to? There's a few parts of that, I suppose. There's the ideological dimension of what the state is conceptualised as doing or promising and then how that gets allocated to social actors of a variety of kinds. So I look very broadly from local neighbourhood and village associations and and organisations who are doing all sorts of sort of local road construction, uh, ambulance services, free funeral services, through to monastic hospitals, to church uh, education networks, uh, to armed groups and the role that they play in a whole variety of of social governance. Uh, And so a whole spectrum of of actors very broadly conceived as non-stake. But the key, I suppose, focus of that concept is how the sort of ideological promise of the state's social role and its sort of functional role in social provisioning gets transferred to non-state actors, including private sector actors and business people in particular. Hmm. 
Is that what Suchi was performing that day in 2015 on the roadside collecting garbage? Can you just develop the vignette a little bit more for listeners who may be curious as to why I introduced the episode with it before we proceed? One of the arguments I make is that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi played a really key role in taking what was an autocratic strategy of the early 1990s to justify austerity in, in, in some ways. It was a huge retrenchment of social spending and a real deconstruction of, of the Burma Socialist Program Party BSPP sort of vision of a socialist welfare state. There were lots of mechanisms through which that occurred, but one of that was the ideological side that there was this encouragement that citizens should take responsibility for not just themselves, but for the community in which they operate and, and for society at large. And one of the fascinating things that I trace in the book is how this became sort of a bipartisan vision of uh, state-society relations in which Aung San Suu Kyi in particular played a really important role in the 1990s in carving this rollout for welfare-oriented social action when otherwise party political activities were heavily suppressed. And so one of the ways that a lot of people engaged in what they viewed as sort of democratic activism in the 1990s and 2000s was ostensibly apolitical and often deliberately framed in that way. And, you know, she really encouraged that in her writings and in her actions. And then soon after winning the election, this was the sort of exemplar of how individuals and communities should be taking responsibility for themselves and not really turning to the state to solve social problems and to provide public goods. And so this sort of idea is one which I try to trace in the book from its sort of origins in the post-colonial period through to the ways that it takes expression even now after the the military ceased power once again in 2021 and and, uh, dynamics of self-reliance and uh, resistance that we see often relying on the same mechanisms of non-state welfare provisioning that, that I look at in the book. So I think before we talk more about those mechanisms, as you put it, it would be useful for you to trace a little bit more of that history, which is very well set out in the book, and give us a little bit more of the context of the 2010s for listeners who don't pay as much attention to Myanmar and the situation there as you or I do. A key concept in, in the book that I work with is, is this idea of autocratic welfare capitalism. And I use this to describe the early 1990s and 2000s process of kind of market reform, the kind of political economy, which we know a little bit about from some of the literature, though a lot of the work that I do in, in that first part of the book is looking at the provincial mechanisms of market reform and mediated licensing and uh, the role of uh, military commanders, for example, in dispersing licenses to people who were helping them govern, basically, in in the 1990s and 2000s. And this political economy collides with the moral economy. And so you have this sort of vision, as I've said, of state-society relations in which the state is sort of retrenching its ideological role, as well as the very haphazard functional role it was playing in welfare provisioning during the, the socialist period in lowland areas, at least. And so that kind of idea of autocratic welfare capitalism, I trace a little bit in the the first historical chapter of the book, which sort of makes an argument that welfare capitalism wasn't new in the 1990s. Actually, it was a way in which to balance this distributive paradox, you might say, after the 
colonial period of trying to deliver redistribution uh, of some kind and address the immense economic and social inequities that were generated during the colonial period and by the Depression in particular. And in the 1950s, welfare capitalism was embraced by the civilian government of UNU as a way to try and balance a redistributive function of economic system and social system with basically providing very little redistribution through taxation. And so this sort of distributive paradox of redistribution without taxation, which comes out of a big tax revolt, say a San Rebellion, in the wake of the Depression, which really shaped the independence movement, was the first time, I argue, that welfare capitalism came to the heights of of Burmese political strategy in the 1950s. And in many ways, actually, this wasn't unique. A lot of countries were grappling with this paradox of trying to deliver modernisation without uh, substantive taxation. And then we have this sort of period of very autarkic socialism between 1962 and and 88. So welfare capitalism sort of gets abandoned during this period, but then comes back with a vengeance, I argue, in in the 1990s. And so what this generated was this expectation that uh, anyone who generated any kind of private wealth with that political economy of licensing and contracting was an expectation that you really needed to take responsibility for the communities in which you operated and to really demonstrate to military commanders and members of the military junta that you had a social conscience of some kind. And this made for a very haphazard form of social provisioning as the state was really withdrawing after 99 and slashing education and health funding, for example. So this sort of political economy of licensing, as I said, is reinforced by this moral economy. And this is encouraged by the Union Solidarity Development Association, which is sort of the veteran association that became the military-linked party in the run-up to the 2010 election. And a lot of the trainings they did in the 1990s about civics and training for young people really prioritised this idea of if you do business, you need to give away some of your wealth to build schools and build bridges and this sort of idolisation of the past and this um, mythology making about monarchical periods where business people would give public goods to the state just because they wanted to contribute to the polity. And so these created what I argue this sort of these networks of, of business and, and dynamics of state business relations, but also this sort of moral economy, which then becomes part of a sort of a democratic politics because the National League for Democracy, which is organisationally very suppressed in the 1990s and 2000s, then embraces this partition space for civic activism of some kind in the 1990s and 2000s. And so this sets the stage in the run-up to the 2010 elections in November 2010 to, to then continue this process of social outsourcing, that the dynamics of state business relations and the sort of underlying conception of what democratic politics sort of looked like had already been set by this time of the transition to partial civilian rule. Then we have this decade between 2011 and 2021, two governments, the General Fensain or then President Fensain government led by the USDP, and then from at the end of 2015 or beginning of 2016 through the beginning of 2021, the government led by Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy. And the continuity, I argue, was a consistent commitment to this idea that uh, it really should be non-state social actors, private actors, business people, charities, philanthropy, religious communities, 
who are plugging the gaps in social welfare and stretching state social funds as, as far as possible by minimising expectations of the state. And I was really intrigued by this idea that even though you've got a transition to some sort of a, a more democratic mode of rule, that the state is not promising more, actually. In fact, there's this sort of bipartisan embrace of this idea of um, you know everyone pitching in and taking responsibility for themselves and really not asking the state for too much. And so I found this sort of a, a peculiar dynamic that we just didn't really have a good account of, of where it came from, but also what the long-term kind of consequences are for how people envision democratic politics, but but also the entrenchment of of inequality in a context where the state does so little socially and in terms of, of public goods. A sympathetic, if not apologetic, view of the National League for Democracy and Aung San Suu Kyi would be that it was structurally constrained in government and had to rely on existing arrangements for non-state welfare if it was going to get anything done at all. But as you were just saying then, you think that the ideological components are significant. So can you say a little bit more about how and why it is that that's the case? And perhaps for listeners who aren't familiar with the term along the way, explain what you mean by moral economy. It's a really good question, which is a very common apologetic strategy for the National League for Democracy government, that their kind of hands were tied, I suppose. And it is true that the constitution, which the military had drafted itself, the 2008 constitution, certainly had a whole bunch of rigged institutions embedded within it that uh, would uh, entrench the ongoing uh, role of the military in politics and its sort of uh, autonomy from civilian oversight. The main contribution I'm trying to make here is to say not that rigged institutions don't matter and that they don't um, constrain action, but that we actually need to look deeper to explain the kind of level of commitment that we see consistently across governments to a very minimalist kind of conception of, of the state's social role. And one of the ways that I kind of look at and think about this in, in the book is focusing on how the ideological commitment of the National League for Democracy was very deeply entrenched in the 1990s and followed all the way through to how it practiced government to essentially embrace middle class and business elite kind of network and ideal as being perfectly consistent with a democratic ethos. And this played itself out during that democratic decade in terms of really evading any kind of expansion of taxation, for example, on businesses or or on the wealthy. And really this consistent emphasis, including during the pandemic, in shifting the responsibility over to communities to run quarantine centres, to provide contributions and, and donations to the National Vaccination Fund. And there are certainly legacies of really minimal tax revenue. I mean, Myanmar has one of the lowest tax to GDP ratios in the world. Certainly there are are those resource constraints that run alongside the rig institutions. But one of the things that I explore a lot in in the book is how the idea of non-state welfare is not just sort of practical, functionally preferable to the state social role because it's more direct, because it's more efficient, because it's it's more cost effective, for example, but also this this sort of ideological preference that actually it's better for society and for 
the way that people use their liberty and freedom, these political philosophies that Aung San Suu Kyi and other political thinkers in the 1990s, including prominent monks, for example, talking about individual responsibility in a more democratic polity, these sort of ideological justifications for social outsourcing not just made non-state provisioning functionally preferable, but actually saw the state's social role as undesirable because it would undermine this sort of social fabric, you might say, that was necessary for a free democratic polity. And that really it was through virtuous actions of individuals engaging in redistributive action of working for others in particular, that uh, was, was the basis for a free um, democratic polity. And I think this is where the concept of, you might say, kind of moral economy really comes in. We think about the political economy of state business relations in the 1990s, as I, as I talked about, but also how key Buddhist concepts, uh, the idea of parahita, for example, the idea of work for others, become sort of almost a, a sort of civic term. It's expanding the scope of that charity quite substantially in a way that, that really hadn't been the case at any point in Burmese history previously. I mean, research by folks like Alicia Turner on Parahita during the colonial period really looks at the use of this term to refer to meritocratic, uh, karmically beneficial actions that propagated Buddhism, for example, you know, teaching Buddhism to children. And by the 1990s, we see this concept begin to be used, and then at sort of probably its most pivotal and widespread point during Cyclone Nagas, the idea of Parahita was really used by monks and by local response groups who had been doing neighbourhood kind of activities in the 1990s and 2000s on a haphazard basis. But then when Cyclone Nagas hit, had been driven down to and encouraged actually by uh, the military to go and respond to the incredible devastation that, that was seen across the country. And this idea of Prahita then gets embedded within this larger circuit of redistribution and disaster response and fused with this sort of civic moral conception in which there's this idea of a moral community of Buddhists in particular and Buddhist ideas of reincarnation, for example, being used to stitch together and justify this geographically expansive um, notion of compassion and uh, generosity. People on the other side of the country could be your family reincarnated and therefore you have uh, some kind of a obligation to, to help them and that you should use whatever resources that you can garner at a local level within the community from business people and you should try and go and, and help those people. And so that's the ideological idea that I'm talking about, this moral economy of reciprocity beyond the state and which the state's intervention might actually be on a more day-to-day basis undesirable because it could undermine the kind of social bonds between this moral community that is necessary for a free Buddhist polity to develop. And I've talked a little bit about these key Buddhist concepts. And I think it is really important to look at the flip side here, and and maybe we can talk about this, the the exclusionary dimension. So that often these concepts which get framed in a way that is very inclusive and, you know, we help people without regard to gender or place or to, to class, that actually there's an implicit exclusion that goes on with that, including just the practical side that often relying on monasteries, for example, to help to be the the hub for collecting and redistributing goods, uh, including during disasters, can sometimes work to the exclusion of non-Buddhist communities, either because they just view that as being something that they're not included in, or that there's an explicit exclusion that goes on that says, actually, we need to be helping our own first. Let's come to exclusion in a moment or come back to it. I think you're right to pick up on it and say that we should talk about it more. But 
Before we do that, I think someone listening to what you've said thus far may think that you've done this research from a distance. Uh, you spent a considerable period of time in Myanmar during the 2010s, and you did fieldwork in a provincial town. It's on the basis of that fieldwork that the book is written. So tell us about that site that you went to, why you chose to go there, and a little bit of what you did. The book is based on the better part of seven years of off and on research, but uh, in particular, um, really intensive political ethnography in 2015 and 2016, along with a household survey that I did in 2016. Uh, focused in Northern Bago region and Northern Korean state, the approach I, I took was to try and spend as long as I could in provincial areas of the country where there had been really very little political studies done. The book is based on time spent working with uh, welfare groups and tracing basically every uh, social initiative that I could find and uh, spending a lot of time in very carefully selected villages and wards and tracing how everyday people had uh, were engaging with and, and interacting with local uh, welfare initiatives, including state initiatives, and really trying to understand the ways that they talked about it, uh, concepts and ideas that they used in Burmese to try and, I suppose, get a, get a sense as to where the expectations of the state were at and what, what did it mean after a period of so much antagonism towards the state and austerity, what had developed in, in the wake of that. So trying to make sense of all of that through long-term fieldwork meant that I followed all the big things that happened during that period, including disasters. And so I followed all of the fundraising campaigns in the wake of Cyclone Komen, uh, which struck in mid-2015 during my fieldwork and was considered to be sort of one of the closest in terms of its its distribution of, of effect, though it didn't kill as many people as Cyclone Nargis, you know, devastated a large parts of, of the country, including the Delta. And so along with a series of, of welfare groups, I just followed them as they went around and raised tens of thousands of dollars worth of goods, like uh, rice and clothes and oil and um, saucepans and that kind of thing, and then went down with them to the Delta and to spend time in canoes going around in the floodwaters, going to monasteries that were otherwise everywhere in the village was inundated, but because the monastery was happened to be on stilts, the monk calls across the water on a megaphone and all these canoes just sort of emerge from various points of dry land and families come to, to collect their care packages from people from the other side of the country. And so this was the kind of insight that I was able to get just by doing long-term field work at a period when that was accessible and, and possible. And I was in some ways tremendously lucky to have that period of time because in the current context obviously that's just been so disrupted but I kept really close connections with my field site including digital connections after I left the field uh, quote-unquote um, in the, the end of 2016 really and uh, yeah I've sort of kept in touch with people even to this day about what's happening locally and have followed as a lot of my interlocutors and, and folks I was in touch with have had to navigate and uh, react and reorganize their lives in response to the military coup and in many cases trying to prioritize resistance and imagining an alternative to the current dictatorship. Let's stick with the flood for a moment because there's a lot going on in that part of the book that is revealing of the phenomena that you're interested to explore. A couple of things that you just raised which seem to me to go very well to points you were making earlier that you can now spell out with some more specificity include the need which we saw first of all during Cyclone 
Nargis in 2008, the need for people to take stuff themselves. What is it about that practice that goes to the points that you want to make about outsourcing and state society relations such as they are in Myanmar? It's a really good question because I think it gets to the heart of how the aspirations and ideals of non-state welfare can often have some some biases within them. And I think one of the things that I found really fascinating was this real emphasis on both relationality with the people that you are giving to, and with that, a sense of directness that um, we need as few intermediaries as, as possible. And in a lot of ways, there is really a skepticism of... Um, the state, partly, you know, from experience that people during Nargis in particular were very sceptical that the state may try to take the resources that they were trying to give to the needy, uh, devastated communities. And so there was this practical kind of sense of, you know, we need to bypass the state as much as we can. And we saw that a lot in Cyclone Komen in 2015, that, uh, you know, there were these memes that circulated on online that people talked a lot about of the government is taking aid from UNICEF. And then clumsily rebadging it with you know a sheet of paper that says uh, from the Myanmar government. And these images of these kinds of piles of boxes clearly you know really are, were originally from international donors, but uh, which the Myanmar government was sort of uh, trying to rebadge. It circulated really widely in my field work and was used as an example in, in 2015 as to why we needed to go ourselves and also to, to sort of give the aid directly. And so there was this sort of practical dimension of wanting to bypass the state because they felt that it would be inefficient and and that there might be leakage or resources might get lost. But also this sort of ideological preference for relationality and this idea that the volunteer and the donor is transformed through having that human relational contact with the beneficiary or the needy person who's being assisted. And again, this is where the kind of moral economy comes in, this sort of non-state welfare sector, and it's been connected to the dynamics of marketization as I argue. But then there's also key Buddhist concepts around knowing that the thing that you've done, the action that you've done or the gift that you've given has been given with kind of clean and pure intentions and that it has had some kind of beneficial impact. And this was a big debate within 1990s and 2000s Buddhism as charity began to really blossom. And this kind of conception that actually when you give a gift it's not just for the beneficiary but you are also practicing a kind of detachment which within buddhism was viewed as this very karmically beneficial kind of action and so we see this collision of a kind of a welfare regime which was relying on people engaging in meritorious voluntary action and the voluntariness here is is really important because as soon as something becomes coerced within this buddhist framework work, it loses its freedom. And as a result, the the sense of um, it being a karmically beneficial uh, activity gets completely lost. And so this is where you end up in this really fascinating question as to if you needed to provide public goods through taxation, how would you be able to do that in a context where the dominant ethical framework, moral framework um, around charity and non-state welfare has really emphasised not being forced to do anything that you don't ethically want to do? And so this is this really interesting tension where uh, you get a lot of social pressure that no doubt develops through non-state welfare campaigning and a lot of emotional appeals. And I followed this during the disasters as, as well, where one of the things I talk about is the exclusionary dimension. 
implications of all of that. And so in a context where you, there's a lot of imaginative and performative work that goes into rendering those hundreds, in, in some cases thousands of kilometres away from you uh, as being people who are needing support, who have a, a kind of, you have an obligation to, that those who are socially distant from you because they're, they're from a, a different um, a community, because they're not part of social networks, because they're from mountainous areas where they're not connected to you by telecommunications or social media or by religious networks, they get kind of accidentally even, if not deliberately, mapped out of that social imaginary of reciprocity. And, and you therefore end up with this system of reciprocity where some people receive support quite substantively, at least in the short term, uh, after something like a disaster. But, but others who, for example, a, a few weeks after Cyclone Coleman in, in 2015, there was a large, big landslide in, in KR State linked to the same kind of uh, torrid weather that, that happened at the same time. And all of the volunteer groups that I, that I followed were completely exhausted already because they'd spent weeks fundraising and then going to the Delta. And they also just had no connections to this area in KR State, which was larger Christian and um, rogue connections to this area were spotty and you know social media and telecommunications networks in that area at the time were, were quite limited. So the, the, the kind of logistical and social kind of dimensions of connection to that, those areas of, of landslide was very minimal. And the level of willingness and and energy from the volunteer networks that I followed to organize again to go and support those communities in need from the landslides um, was very minimal. And so this connects to this larger conversation about when the social role of the state is necessary in the context of poverty or, or disaster and public goods and how relying on non-state welfare networks to deliver can sometimes fragment the kinds of connections that's necessary within a polity and the consensus that's necessary to say, well, actually, the state is necessary to, to intervene and, and to, to organise uh, some kind of way to equalise between communities or ensure that everyone receives support regardless of their geographic or uh, their social connection to the mainstream of society. And so I connect that to larger debates about the consensus required for tax states and uh, what that means for a national political community as well. And all of this rolls over from the first half of the decade that you're doing your research into the second and into this condition of democratic or let's say semi-democratic welfare capitalism. And it seems that there are a variety of forms of exclusion and persistent inequality and marginalization that follow from that. The radical exclusion of Rohingya and the genocidal violence against that community in particular, but against other Muslim communities as well. But also the story you're telling in the book is of a rather more insidious form of exclusion in which decisions around who is or isn't a worthy recipient of assistance really come right down to the local level, to the individual household, the individual recipient, even among members of communities who are culturally, linguistically alike, Buddhist, Burma community members. Can you speak to those aspects of how the welfare capitalist arrangements that you're tracking over these periods, not only are they not undermined uh, with the National League for Democracy and Government, but if anything, are reinforced through the kind of moral ordering and reordering of the political community that you're alluding to? 
The thing I found completely fascinating was that there was this project style of self-reliance initiatives within villages across you know the areas of the country that I was, I was doing research in 2015 and 2016. And I found this really kind of fascinating because I knew that the Myanmar government was spending a lot more on rural development initiatives and um, and social initiatives. And yet these, these projects seem to be everywhere. And I kind of had, had um, taken from a lot of the comparative literature about democratization and, and so social expenditure and rural development in particular, that this kind of communal contributions to welfare would be something that would evaporate or wouldn't be as prevalent as the state was spending more because people would need to, to make these kind of contributions to local welfare initiatives. And as I began to dig into these initiatives, it became this really interesting study in some ways of austerity that even though the state was spending more, including during the same period, but then particularly in the, during the National League for Democracy period, in a variety of different kinds of local uh, spending schemes to pr- improve local roads, to uh, support local business people in, in, in villages through small loans and, and this kind of thing, that um, people were turning to these like local self-reliance idioms and projects and that they weren't disappearing. And I kind of dug into this. And one of the things that I found is that the dynamics whereby people received government support during that democratic decade very much relied on people proving that they were worthy partners. And part of this, again, building on this sort of moral economy and um, sort of uh, state ideal during the 1990s and 2000s was that people shouldn't turn to the state to solve their problems and shouldn't rely on the state, but that the state should be approached as uh, sometimes compassionate and generous, but not an institution that should be demanded from. And this was something that played itself out really interestingly where I followed these projects of self-reliance. That, you know, they were referred to as Kotu Gota, Kotumin Kosa, Goa Koko, which are, you know, self-reliance or you have to eat your own rice or you have to you have to lift yourself by your own power. And there was this sort of practical, again, this sort of practical idea of you can't expect that the state is going to be able to come, but also this sort of idea that what society needs is citizens taking responsibility for themselves. And in fact, that this was what democracy meant. And at the core of this, I think, is this sort of competitive concept of rights, whereby communities and individuals need to compete with each other to prove themselves worthy by taking responsibility for themselves and not demanding too much of the state. And as sort of one parliamentarian explained it to me, the communities need to show that they're a good partner for the state's investment. And so again, we see this sort of discourse of of business and the community being a a subject of investment rather than a discourse of any kind of sort of social rights to which communities would be entitled. And so this creates a sort of competition that communities need to prove themselves. And in some cases, there's an actual competition. You know, there was a big World Bank community development scheme that uh, was rolled out in the 2010s. And one of the annual parts of this was a literal competition between villages in which essentially competed against each other to, to demonstrate, you know, which communities were most cohesive and had the, the strongest participation in various schemes, and including, you know, dance competitions. And and you have these, often these very lovely kind of moments that are ceremonial and ritual, but underpinning them is this quite pernicious concept of competing for rights and fundamentally this concept of austerity. That, that the state's resources are finite and limited and, and so limited such that you really need to work for anything that you get from the state. 
I think that before we wind towards a conclusion, we need to say a little bit more about cronies because they're, they're an important part of your book as well. And we haven't really given them their fair share, ironically, of this story. You tell the story of non-state welfare and philanthropy and capital accumulation from the 1990s through to the late 2010s in part through a recurrent narrative about a particular crony, a military-connected businessman who's particularly prominent in the town where you did your research. Who was he and how, by paying attention to his activities, were you able to follow the emergence of welfare capitalism and its subsequent variants? Kim Wai is the chairman of uh, CB Bank, which is one of the largest banks in Myanmar. I was in some ways sort of peculiarly lucky in that uh, he happened to be from the town where I had chosen to do my field work. He had sort of emerged from nowhere after the 1988 protests, apparently had been involved as one of the committee members of the camps in Tangu in Bago region where uh, I spent a lot of time. And because he was everywhere in the history of charity and welfare within where I did my research, you know, having funded organisations in the 1990s and 2000s, I sort of had to tell his story because in, in some ways he was the perfect demonstration of a lot of these dynamics of state business relations and the kind of moral economy, you might say, of, of business from the post-socialist period through to today. And so I sort of use him and his business and um, his networks as a sort of prism to thinking about capital accumulation during the 1990s and 2000s and how you had to sort of negotiate with military commanders um, by engaging in, in social uh, activities of various kinds and including you know building roads and um, schools and donating them to the junta uh, during the 1990s and 2000s also you know thinking about how he played a role during that democratic decade in using philanthropy and sort of very strategic patronage you might say of uh, local community festivals of even things like municipal trash collection and how the various social uh, spheres where the state was absent could be filled by people who happened to have substantial capital, but the way that they used those kinds of social roles to then sort of influence decision-making about things like licensing and renewal of leases and um, this kind of thing during that democratic decade. And so one of the things I follow in, in the chapter is the dynamic of the National League for Democracy activists who had been very involved in the political campaign and the run-up to the 2015 elections, um, also being directly connected to these networks of capital and um, this tycoon, so much so that they felt really not just practically threatened by the idea that he might be involved in land grabs. There was an investigation by a journalist who was uh, digging into claims that he had engaged in land grabs during the 1990s and 2000s. A lot of these NLD activists got incredibly incensed by this idea that he could be investigated and uh, that it wasn't necessarily that he hadn't engaged in these things, but that it was a threat to the local community and to the city and to really the country because uncovering and ruck making of, of the kind that the journalist was engaging in was a threat to the social role that he played in patronising all sorts of local social organisations, sports teams and public goods. And this idea that, that actually would be a threat to this vision of democracy if he was to withdraw his social philanthropy of a whole variety of causes, that this would be bad for democracy and, and bad for, for the country. And so ultimately, you know, the journalist who was in town investigating the claims of land grabs 
was essentially chased out of town by a social media campaign and, and by a street campaign of counter protests and um, ruck making against the, the journalist uh, who ultimately had to, to flee the town and um, uh, I believe moved out of journalism. And so there's sort of these dynamics of capital being able to embed itself within the democracy movement that I follow in, in the book and, and then make um, a larger conversation about what that means for tax policy during the NLD period and, and the, the broader approach to state business relations. A couple of times in that response, you referred to patronage, to uh, Kim Ong e as a patron, and I think listeners who have read and thought with and in and perhaps written in the literature of the political economy of Southeast Asia will be thinking that isn't this you know just another story of old-fashioned clientelistic relations with a local big man succeeding in getting his way through a combination of coercive measures and persuasive ones as well, and that this is a story that's been around a long time. What's different here? Is it that explicit connection of his activities, his good works, as it were, to democracy? Is there something more in that story you're telling to come back then to democratic welfare capitalism that you'd like to draw the listeners' attention to before we close? In some ways, I think there's a risk that uh, Myanmar and, and Southeast Asia more broadly gets framed in this kind of exceptional way, like uh, the dynamics of patronage and uh, you know relationships between state and business that we see in, in Southeast Asia don't tell us anything necessarily about dynamics more broadly. And one of the things that I try to do in, in is to, to kind of connect this conversation in the, the Myanmar case and context to a, a broader discussion about 21st century capitalism and about the extent of you know quality that we you know live with in, in the early 21st century particularly this kind of return of welfare capitalism not just in the Burmese context but more broadly in which business people uh, are seen to be so critical to public goods that they are sort of above scrutiny in a variety of ways and, and above regulation and I think that's where there's a really a strong contribution I hope that the book can make to larger conversations about democratic politics and what philanthropy does to conversations about accountability and undermining the effect that this has on political debate about uh, the social role of of the state, which is critical to to responding to the 21st century challenges that we face, not just that Myanmar faces and and countries in Southeast Asia, but around the globe. And and I think that's where these dynamics of patronage as well that I I look at and I build up on on a lot of the theories of uh, Jim Scott and others that also I think that those can help to inform those global debates, that the structures of patronage that often just get glossed outside of the Southeast Asian context perhaps is just sort of corruption, but that actually these dynamics of material but also ideational bonds between political elites and economic elites, it's really important to look at both of those dimensions to understand the ways in which capital evades regulation and what that does to the politics of, of redistribution and what the social state can do in the 21st century to address social problems. Let's come back to Myanmar in closing. You alluded a couple of times to the 2021 military coup that brought to a close certainly the period of democratic welfare capitalism, which makes up the second half of the book. What are we left with then? What's your take on the state of welfare capitalism in Myanmar since the coup? 
we are in a revolutionary moment in, in Myanmar. And, you know, so many of the folks who I spent thousands of hours with during the research for this book are now at the forefront of, of resistance efforts. And some of the things that they are uh, proposing of the abolishment of the military, for example, in some cases, would have been completely unimaginable a few short years ago. So the centre has certainly shifted massively in Myanmar in terms of what is envisaged and the social role of the military, the economic role of the military in particular, which is at the heart of that political economy, which had been largely unchallenged for the past decade, I think has really shifted. And uh, alongside all of the, the kind of demands to abolish the 2008 constitution and completely renovate the military and its role, is also, you know, these social dynamics of trade union sector is incredibly active in you know the, the protests and, and resistance efforts against the dictatorship and you know there's a whole new world of uh, social governance and reciprocity in large parts of the country which are outside of the Myanmar military's control most rural areas of the country by some estimates more than half the country are being governed in some way by, by resistance efforts and so there's a whole new landscape of, of authority and political structures that in many ways are built on the same kind kind of reciprocity mechanisms and, and ideals of needing to help and support each other, but also based in a different kind of political economy in which it's possible to challenge and reimagine that the military, which controls large chunks of Myanmar's economy, if there is a return to some sort of normalisation of, of politics in Myanmar, the consensus and, and societal centre has, has shifted massively in relation to, to where the political economy was in the 1990s and 2000s. And so there's a real question here about how long revolution can sustain itself. It seems quite a long time because of the mechanisms that were developed, uh, I argue, since the 1990s and 2000s, but also what would come next. Yes, that's right. And so what does that mean for you and your work? One of the things I'm, I'm doing a lot of work on at the moment is uh, partnering with Burmese collaborators on research, focusing on areas outside of the State Administrative Council, the SAC's uh, control and dynamics of social governance in those areas, how communities are delivering justice, delivering schooling, education systems, uh, health systems without uh, state support, and how that connects to these larger resistance efforts. And so there, there are these clearly, you know, a whole variety of different models which are emerging, which, uh, again, I think that the context of Myanmar has so much to, to teach, understandings of resistance and revolution because there's uh, incredible dynamism and imagination and creativity that is going into running life outside of the, the few kind of urban areas where the, where the state still tries to maintain a stranglehold. More broadly, you know, I'm um, doing also a lot of work on the social role of the state and how that's shifting, you know, across Southeast Asia and, and across the globe. And um, one of the areas that I found myself focusing a lot on recently has been the political economy of the gig economy in particular. Um, so when uh, governments across the region during COVID are beginning to respond to this huge sector of the economy that has, has blossomed in recent years. And this is something that we've seen as well in Myanmar. And so I've been following these dynamics as well in Myanmar of gig drivers, gig riders trying to make ends meet through this digitally mediated sector. And what does that mean as a sector of the economy and as a space of a very minimal regulatory control over this sector, but also one where, where governments are beginning to pay attention and attempt to, to kind of regulate. And I think Myanmar kind of can teach us a lot about uh, a lot of these, these dynamics. 
I agree. Jared McCarthy, thanks again for coming on to speak about outsourcing the polity. Thanks so much. Good to be with you. Listeners, if you haven't yet gotten enough on Myanmar and democracy and political economy, then why not check out Michelle Ford talking with Tamus Wells about his narrating democracy in Myanmar or with Jane Ferguson about her repossessing Shan land. These are just a couple of the many great episodes, authors and books on Southeast Asia available for you to listen to right now on the New Books Network, all completely free of charge wherever you get your podcasts. 